Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm ready. I don't know how ready I am, but I'm ready. What's, so, yeah, that's what I was got. Like, let's compare that to something. Like, we're I ready am, as what? I, I'm, I'm as ready as 
Jodie Foster to be dropped down into the time travel machine. Love that movie. How's that? That movie made me want to be a priest. I thought I thought Matthew McConaughey was the hippest priest. Matthew McConaughey is the hippest anything. He really is. He's, ah. the, hippest, he's the hippest serial killer. I hate that he's the guy. Hippest stripper. He's yeah. the hippest uh, criminal. He's the hippest lawyer. He's hip. He's a hip dude. He's, he's a hippie hip. hip. He's hip and hippie cat. Wow. Yeah. Hippie hip hippie hep cat. Can I? I need to derail just a little bit before. I know we have things to talk about, kind of serious things, but I need to talk to you about uh, where you stand on Star Trek. Where do you stand in general on Star Trek? In in the Star Trek series, uh, the TV I, li- or the, I like the Star series. Trek. Like, have, I, you, I, have you seen them all? No, I've only seen Star Trek and uh, the Next Generation. Hmm. I never watched beyond that. You never watched anything beyond that? No. All right. Well, I'm in the middle of uh, I'm, I'm introducing them to my kids. Did we nice. have this conversation already? Have we talked about this? No, because you were, uh, for years now, you've been introducing, uh, uh, what is it, the Lois and Clark or whatever? No, please. <laughs> Lois and Clark? Whatever it's called. One of those star Superman things. Smallville, you tool. There you go. How dare you lower me to Lois and Clark? <laughs> so we've moved on. We finished that. We finished all that. That all that nonsense. Ten right. years of Superman, and we've moved on. And now, and so I gave my children a choice, you know, because I've got them all. I've got every episode of every series here in my house. Wow, that's you a all lot have, of you've, you've all just learned something really incredible about me. And it so is. it's like you're all in my closet. Which is <laughs> awesome. Uh, and so I'm introducing them to the to Star Trek. I gave them a choice. And so what I did was I gave them my 30 second pitch about each series. Original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. Okay? Why wouldn't you just start at the beginning? Um, because I already knew that that wasn't going to fly. <laughs> wow. Okay, I, gotcha. I knew that sitting down and watching The Cage with my 6- and 10-year-old was not going to fly. That was not going to be enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So I'm I'm getting I you know this is this is what I find so interesting about this. So my kids actually chose Voyager, right? And I think you know my daughter is very interested in that sort of strong female protagonist captain. Like she was very cool at hearing it was a woman captain. Uh, but it it struck me sideways that the very first Vulcan that my kids would be introduced to was not Spock. Right. That yeah, I found that but- weird. So, so they hadn't seen the movie. No, the latest, they hadn't the latest seen J.J. Abrams no. Star Wars director. Movie. No, they had not. They had not. Though they're very interested in it now, but I'll tell you why. So I went back after we we we're through. Uh, we've got like four more episodes in season two of Voyager, and I think Voyager really gets good. I think there's a lot of really good stuff. You know, once all these series, Deep Space Nine too, once they find their their kind of sea legs after that third season and they usually like they have really dumb uniforms same thing happened with with uh, next generation really stupid looking uniforms in the first two seasons then they get some good uniforms then the shows get get good they i don't know why they didn't know that uh going in that it's all about the uniform but in any case <laughs> so i introduced uh, i decided that uh, the first star trek movie this is my daughter my son was not into the the longer movies so yeah. my daughter I, we sat down and i i decided i made the call not to watch star trek the original film. Smart. Right? right? We skipped that. But Good. we started with Avoid Wrath, it. We started with Wrath of Khan. Okay. Man, that was a great film. It is. It really is. I'm not is. kidding. I it's been uh, many years since I watched that movie. We had a ball watching that movie. When they put the um the SETI Alpha uh six bugs. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the ears. Man. And I, poor Chekhov I and the captain. That was me too. That was tough. I had nightmares about that because I saw that in theaters with my yeah, dad. Yeah. I guess I would have been like nine or ten or something. And that gave me nightmares for years. I was afraid of earwigs because yeah. of that. And I was convinced they were called earwigs because that's what they did. That's what they did. They were earwigs. And uh, anything like the little silverfish that crawl up your drain. They look kind of like them with the little pincher things. It was it was horrible. That was a horrible thing. I they actually uh, knowing my daughter as I do, I gave her the option of whether or not she wanted to see that. I described it in great detail. We skipped that you know minute and a half of the film, so yeah, she Smart. did not actually see that. But the rest of the film, man, when Khan 
with my last breath, I spit at thee. You know, when he does his thing, yeah. uh, she was on the edge of her uh, proverbial seat. I was really pleased with how well that movie uh, holds up. And it's a fascinating movie because uh, there is so little, if any, I can't, no, there is a little bit of, of time that Khan and Kirk spend together, but hardly any. Right. The vast majority of the film, they are on two separate ships. It's like a submarine movie. Right. It's like an old school submarine movie. Yeah. Right. Um, or uh, Driver. Mm hmm. Right. We talked about that with uh, Driver, right? Didn't we? Drive. Was it, was it Drive? Uh, with him and what's his name? Anyway, uh, it was fantastic. And so we're, I have not, uh, we've not moved on to the Christopher Lloyd. We're kind of going back and forth with the movies, but I feel like we need to get through the canon. So she knows who Kirk and Spock and all these people are. So she's, gotcha. she's pretty excited about it. But it's going really well. Good. Are nice. you, I mean, your kids, are, they're not old enough for that stuff yet. No, no. I can't not, wait. I know. We're still, we're still doing, you know, Tinkerbell and the Lorax over here. Oh, I haven't seen the Lorax. I heard it was bad. Don't watch it. She loves it, but oh, it pains me. I know you're a big fan of the Tinkerbells. <laughs> you know yep. it. Yep. Anyone uh, who wants to know <laughs> we, have my, a, we have a list. My favorite Tinkerbell movies, they can check it out on thenextreel.com. What else can they find at thenextreel.com, Andy? They can find... Uh, <laughs> are you setting up for something? What am I supposed to say? I don't even know. They can find blogs. We post uh, trailers that we are interested in. We post, uh, you know, great little bits about um, uh, all these fun lists that we do relating to uh, things that we talk about on our show. And they can find all of our shows. Soderbergh's quitting movies, is that right? You know, I think he keeps saying that. And then he keeps putting them out like every year. So. I know. What's up with that? So you, would, you wouldn't learn that because we, have, we're, we don't trust him, but we love, we, we love him anyway. Yes. Uh, we gotta, you got to talk about the phone. Did you do the phone number? Show at thenextreel.com. You can write us an email. Please do. And you can find us. Uh, uh, you can call us at 657-201-REAL, 657-201-7335, the heart of Anaheim, and leave us a message we might just play it on the air. Indeed, indeed. I think that's it? Yeah. Oh, you know, if you're a, if you're a Twitter person, you can find us at thenextreel, at, at sign, you know, uh, and thenextreel, you can find us. That's right. Yep. All right. Uh, so what do you what do you got for your uh, trailer of the week? I'm very excited about this. I want you to teach me, learn me something wonderful. I am really excited about this film. I think it's it's one of my uh, one of the films I'm most looking forward to in 2013. Coming out in April, it's Mud, directed by Jeff Nichols. It's his follow up to the fantastic Take Shelter. So and, uh, this is uh, Matthew McConaughey and uh, the lovely Reese Witherspoon. Yes, Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, Michael Shannon's in it, Sam Shepard, uh, Joe Don Baker, a lot of people, and a, and a couple boys, uh, one of which is getting some pretty big billing, Ty Sheridan. I don't know if he's going to be um, you know, making a name for himself. He was also in The Tree of Life, and uh, you know, he's a, he's a, seems like he's going to be a pretty good actor. So, But yeah, this movie's about two boys, uh, teenage kids, who, who are playing around on a little island near them or something, and they find a fugitive. And they form a pact with him to help him evade bounty hunters who are on his trail and reunite him with his true love. Is that Joe Don Baker? As a matter of fact. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good old Joe Don Baker. This is the, this is the, uh, gosh, the Southern romantic, uh, romantic comedy we've been waiting for since the Prince of Tides. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very excited you, for this one. You can't go wrong with Joe Don Baker in a movie, though. You know what's funny about Joe Don Baker? And this is a complete tangent to the trailer, which I am excited about the movie. But Joe Don Baker has been in a number of James Bond movies. Um, and, you know, yes. there's there's uh, a... a uh, uh, um, he's the villain in The uh, Living Daylights. He's Brad Whitaker. Right. And then he comes back in GoldenEye and in Tomorrow Never Dies as like an FBI agent or something, Jack Wade. So right. I always thought that was kind of funny. Wasn't he, like, he's CIA, right? He's CIA, the guy who brings yeah. in all the guns. Yes. So. Oh, Joe Don. Excellent. Yeah, great, great character actor. But anyway, that's my trailer. Looking forward to seeing that when it comes out. And uh, uh, it's going to be a great movie. 
Uh, mine is Upside Down with Kirsten Dunst and Jim Sturgis, a Juan Solanas uh, film. Juan Solanas is an Argentinian, direct, Argentinian director who hasn't done a whole lot. Uh, I don't know much about uh, Juan, uh, but I'm very excited for the movie. Um, you know, that Jim Sturgis. I like that guy. He's one of those guys. He's kind of on my list of people I like wa- watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he did the, the Cloud Atlas. That was great. 21, uh, One Day. Um, you know, he's got to, he's, he's on a good track and this film looks very interesting. Kirsten Dunst, I, um, you know, she's, she's adorable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this film, it's, I don't know what to make of it. I, so the, the whole conceit of the film is that we're on a uh, planet that looks a lot like earth. And the only difference is that, uh, it actually is, uh, there's another one right next to it. Uh, connected to it and they have uh, equal and opposite gravities and so they can like stand and one person can be standing in downtown wherever it is and look up and they see other people at work on the planet that's right above them yeah and uh, uh, so it's a it looks it's to me it feels like somebody who said wow I just saw Inception (laughs) I want to make a movie like that Right, except the right. whole movie. The whole movie. <laughs> it's going to be, I just want to just beat your face with Inception in my own movie. And so I'm going to make it, it's going to be called Upside Nwad. <laughs> right. Which... And, uh, and and so, but, you know, I, I mean, it's a, it ends up being kind of a love story. He, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a Romeo and Juliet kind of a thing or uh, where they, they, it's a, they, they fall in love. They not allowed to love because they're from different planets that are really close. And then they're and, and, and we and you forgot to say one of them is all rich people and one of them, <laughs> one is, all of them is all poor people right uh, but there is a sequence in the, in the trailer that you will see that i think you know if you're if you're like me you will uh, find this really freakishly cool uh you know the uh, sturgis's character is given these weights so that he can uh travel to the other planet and he uh and these weights will hold him down and there's a sequence of them dancing and they're they have reunited and it's great and then they find him and realize he needs to go back to his poor people planet so he runs out and he jumps into the ocean takes off the weights and and you see him fall up out of one ocean and down into the other and i found that like just a riveting effect like i love the idea of playing with gravity i get very excited about it so i'm very excited about this movie yeah i i quite liked that too i mean it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me no nope. i am curious to see how the logic is going to fly in that film but that being said it did look really cool. yeah it looks so cool and i think there's got to be you know there's sort of got to be room for seeing movies that may ultimately end up bad but they were really visual candy so yeah well, you know how I feel about some of those movies. <laughs> I know, right? I hope this one is a little more than that. I do too. See it once. So I'm I've... excited about it. And you know, Argentinian directors is you know that must it's it's out of the it's got to be something right out of the system. A new Argentinian director, they've got to come with some sort of you know street cred. That's right. He's not even he's not even like a big time Argentinian director. No, he's he's like he's like a new guy who did some short films in Argentina and now And now he's got this thing and it looks it looks good. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah. Uh okay. That's all I got. Shall we talk about shall we talk about this movie? Let's. We're we're continuing our uh John Houston series tonight, right? Mm, See. We've done uh weirdly, we have completed two other ones, right? We started with the Fantastic Maltese Falcon and we did the Treasure of the Sierra Madre uh, after that, which was uh, a stunningly satisfying rewatch. Yes. Uh, and and I think a real highlight uh, in in terms of just where Houston pushes characters to go, actors to go as characters. It was in, it, particularly in that time, I think it was it was wonderful. And uh, and so tonight we are uh, we're picking up again with uh, John Huston's Key Largo, 1948. Yeah, same year as Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, uh, another uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Lauren Bacall and uh, Edward G. Robinson. Uh, in yes, this film. and Lionel Barrymore and Claire Trevor. It's a really actually yeah, no, it's a, a big stunning, cast. stunning cast. Yeah, it really is great group all around. It is. It's a. It is. It's okay. It's a great group all around. You're right. Uh, 
tell me tell me what you uh, well first of all it's been a long time uh, since i had seen this movie and and uh it was based on uh let's see it was based on the play uh originally written by uh, maxwell anderson uh, yeah and and it was a um what was the type of play i i read something that described the play and it doesn't sound like um it, it was like a um it's not like a one man play but it's something it's like a free form kind of just a very simple very simplistic short short play mm-hmm. and uh, so they took this play and and really i mean the adaptation was really kind of just almost rewriting it and turning it into something else i mean right. maxwell anderson wrote it in 1939 and then along comes um uh, John Huston, who who decided to do this film, um, and it actually was his last film that he did for Warner Brothers. Um, he was getting pretty put out by by Jack Warner um, because Jack Warner um, had refused John Huston to direct um, O'Neill's A Moon for the Misbegotten, and he was also just d- dissatisfied with the studio. Everything was kind of changing. It was kind of leaving from the a period of people coming up with really creative things to a period that would seem to more corporate commercial and all of that. And, you know, he was just feeling like his hands were tied. He decided this would be his last film. So he started writing it with, um, Richard Brooks. They, they, you know, visited the keys. They, they tried to come up with something that would work that was different from the story from the play, which was, um, about, it took place in the Spanish civil war, uh, or just after the Spanish Civil War, there, there's gangsters, but they're Mexican banditos. They changed it so it it happened um, more recently. This film was made in 1948. It happened during uh, World War II, and uh, he had just come home from the war. And you know, it, it it I think it has a really nice feel to it. I like the feel. I I haven't read the play. But just kind of based on the little bits that I've read about it, it just doesn't sound like there was a whole lot to it. It doesn't sound like it was really that interesting of a play. Yeah, no, it didn't. It didn't seem interesting, and it seemed also like it was a uh, uh, a play that Houston wrote. Um, well, this is this is the passage I think that's from uh, that I, I found interesting from. Uh, uh, let's see. This is from frothygirls.com. Um, and the, <laughs> the, the place to go to find the, the place to go. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a nice piece here from, uh, uh, Nat, uh, Almiral, who writes, uh, with its dearth of locations, it's not surprising. This was based on a stage play, though. Houston was apparently not a fan of Anderson's work. He notes that his hand, his and co-writer Richard Brooks script was dramatically superior to the source material. And at least according to Wikipedia, Houston's dislike went deeper quote within a quote the film script was heavily changed from the play john houston was so angered with the deficiencies in the play that he barred producer jerry wald from the set of the film it was believed that houston was in a rage over the house un-american activities committee uh hearings and didn't want to adapt a play by a reactionary who hated franklin delano roosevelt so go ahead yeah i was gonna say in john houston he was very um uh you know, he really kind of got a vibe for the place that the country was in at this time. And it was very much, you know, he kind of wrote this with that in mind. He really wanted to to put some political subtext in it. And, you know, he he wrote in his in his autobiography, an open book, he wrote um the high hopes and idealism of the Roosevelt years were slipping away and the underworld as represented by Edward D. Robinson and his hoods was once again on the move, taking advantage of social apathy. We made this the theme of the film. So, you know, he really keyed into that and you can get that from Humphrey Bogart's character, Frank McLeod, how he's really kind of not interested in, in taking a stand against this gangster that's kind of holed up in this this hotel down in Key Largo. He would almost just rather, you know, just kind of set aside and just let things happen as they may. And it's not until the end that, of course, he is able to step up and you know, become the hero and everything. But it really was, you know, a, a political subtext of this film that John Huston wanted to get a, across that, you know, America is sinking into moral complacency. These gangsters are coming back. 
And, you know, we really need to find a way to uh, do something better. Right. And the, and the whole idea of, of sort of where we are in our, our kind of cultural uh, development of crime. I mean, the, the gangsters are lamenting the, you know, uh, what happened with the loss of prohibition uh, yeah. and, and that they weren't making any money anymore. <laughs> um, uh, right. And yeah. So, and I, I said World War War. Two, but I think it actually is World War One, right? Right, and we're talking about yeah. I mean, and and so the model of Robinson's character, you know, it, it's it's kind of a Capone kind of a uh, a, um, a character who you know is is kind of associated with the that decade of real uh, just raking in the money through prohibition and and um, uh, you know I think I read at one point he was making more than you know sixty million a year uh, from the sale of illegal sale of beer. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, it's, it, it, Robinson's sort of portrayal of this thug who is, you know, at this, this in, in sort of the, um, the trying to build his and reclaim his, his empire and go down to, uh, get down to Cuba and start from scratch. With a load of, with a load of, uh, um, of, uh, fake bills. Of fake bills. Right. And, and, uh, and start building, uh, reclaiming his throne, uh, I think is a, it's a, a fascinating uh, uh, way to set the stage for this what otherwise is kind of a uh, uh, it's not so much a locked room mystery but it really it, it really takes place on one set um, yeah well, i guess a couple of sets if you count the boat uh, and the dock but uh, most of it takes place in this house or in this hotel do you want to walk through just briefly what the the story itself uh, uh, how the story unfolds yeah, so so Frank McLeod, this uh, this uh, veteran who's returned home from the war, is going down to Key Largo to find the father and um, widow of somebody that he served with, so he can kind of you know tell them what happened to this guy when he was uh, when they were serving together and what a hero this guy was and all that sort of stuff. He goes down to their hotel, which they manage on Key Largo, only to find, because of the season, the hotel's actually closed, although this gangster has actually paid a ridiculous amount of money to kind of rent the place out for a week and has holed up there with his, with his cronies while he waits for this shipment of these uh, this counterfeit bills to come in so that he can take it, hop on a boat, and go down to Cuba and make it big. Um, of course, at the same time, uh, well, so conflicts ensue with all these people in the hotel. And then, of course, at the same time, this hurricane rolls in and starts, you know, ripping things apart and making a real mess for everybody. And uh, I mean, so that's the long and the short of it. And then, you know, obviously he has to kind of step up. Is he going to help, you know, stop these guys or is he going to just stand aside and let them kind of run over him? Yeah. Now, uh, right. So then the, the storm ends up passing, uh, and things kind of, uh, unravel as, um, you know, as the authorities are, are, uh, introduced in the film. The, the, the thing that I find interesting about this, uh, to me, this is an Edward G. Robinson movie. It really is. I mean, and he is, I mean, God, you know, what a presence Edward G. Robinson has. He comes onto the screen and you just can't take your eyes off of him. I mean, he's riveting, whether he's getting a shave or or taking a bath or just, you know, freaking out because of the hurricane or whatever. I mean, he's just so amazing to look at. And it's funny, um, John Houston actually referred to him when he's in the bathtub with his cigar in the mouth. He said he looks like a crustacean with its shell off. <laughs> which is which is absolutely brilliant. And I think that's, you know, you bring up that scene. That's how we meet Edward G. Robinson in this movie. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's how we are introduced. He is smoking this long, um, you know, he's smoking this long uh, cigar and he is in the bathtub with a fan on him and... You know, it it is a strange choice, I think, to introduce the you know the film's antagonist, primary antagonist, in in otherwise kind of a vulnerable way. Uh, but I think he plays it so well, right? He plays this sort of um, uh, what's you know this kind of eccentricity so well. 
mm-hmm. that um, that he earns it very quickly. He earns that vulnerability very quickly by the time he gets down and really sort of takes ownership of the of the rest of the film. And I think the the reason I I'm, I'm kind of hedging how I'm talking about Robinson is because you know this is also a Bogart and Bacall film, but they to me you know. Lauren Bacall has a, a real gift in this movie of just being, you know, beautiful. And uh, Bogart is, you know, he gets his sort of brooding thing going. But really, they were, I think, uh, to me, otherwise uh, unimpressive in this film and and really sort of paled in comparison to what I thought Robinson did. Well, and I think that is because of their the the, the characters in the film. You know, I mean, she's a war widow. She really kind of has a much more tragic demeanor to mm-hmm. her the whole time. She's very quiet, subdued, and I really like how she played it. Um, and I think it's how they were written. They just have um, a very kind of laid-back way. There's not a big romance between the, um, the Bogart and Bacall characters, um, even though they yeah, do kind of fall weird. for each other. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like, you know, she was married to his buddy in the war, and it's almost like one of those, you don't want that relationship to happen because it feels so awkward sorts of things. And it, it kind of does. It comes in a little bit at the end, but, you know, it's it's not quite there all the way. And, I mean, the other they they started four films together, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, Dark Passage, and Key Largo. This was the last one they did together. And I, yeah, this relationship of all of those four films is definitely the most subdued and least interesting of all of them. Right. But again, I, I think it just boils down to it, it's because the nature of the characters. And I, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it works fine. Yeah, I don't think so either. I, you know, but it just, you know, it surprised me because when I, the first time I watched this movie, I, it, when I, when I went to sit down and watch it again, I remembered it as that this was a Bogart movie. And yeah. I was surprised at just the dominance of, of you know, Robinson's character and Robinson's persona on screen, even though, uh, you know, I, I just found him, I found him really compelling to watch through and through. You know, he always is compelling. He's just so great, whether he's a good guy, whether he's a bad guy, whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the, the, the great thing is, I mean, he's kind of known as a gangster and he's got that great line about, uh, you know, about being a public enemy. And he's just... He really fits that gangster role so well. Um, but, I mean, this is a man who did, I think he did 100 films. Right. I mean, just a ton of films. And he actually appeared in a good number of them um, with uh, with Bogey. And I, I don't know what the exact number is, but they, they definitely shared screen time uh, together before. And he always got top billing over Bogey. And I think this was the first time where they were trying to, you know, figure out a way to handle it because they didn't really, um, uh, Bogart was really the protagonist of the film. And so they put them on the same page on the titles and on the poster and everything. But Robinson's name was a little, a little higher, a little taller. So, I mean, in a way it's just like, okay, you're, you're on the same plane now, but you know, Robin still, Robinson still gets a little bump. Right. Right. It's kind of funny. Uh, the other, uh, I, I think really, fantastic fantastic performance in this is uh, claire trevor you know and she won an oscar for this rightly so mm-hmm. it's it's a heartbreaking performance uh claire trevor really uh, just really breaks your heart when she sings the song um she sings you know um the gangster uh, edward g robinson's character makes her sing this this song um that's called moan and low and it's really a tragic song about a woman trapped in a relationship with an abusive man. She ha- she has to sing it. There's no accompaniment or anything. And you just hear in her voice the heartbreak, the uh, depression, the just the the bitter tears of of this of being trapped in this relationship uh, for you know for real. And it uh, it's it's a painful song to listen to. And uh, I think. For that song alone, she probably uh, got her Oscar. I think so, and and particularly, you know, you look at uh, apparently how the the take came together that that she had been trying to rehearse, she'd been asking Houston to rehearse, and he he uh, kept saying no, 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 there's there's time, uh, and um, uh, and then he turned on the camera one afternoon and said, "This is we're we're going to do this right now, no rehearsal." They gave her the note from the piano and 
quote in front of the rest of the cast and crew sang the song. It was this raw take that was actually used in the film. Yeah. And you, it just feels it. It feels absolutely raw. It feels, um, you know, talk about vulnerability. Um, you know, it's it's shaky and yet really, I mean, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but it, but Bogart's, you know, Bogart's character's response, uh, I think, is uh, even... Even, you know, it really is wonderful punctuation on the sequence uh, as he walks over and, uh, you know, ignores that he is under gunpoint and, and gives her a drink. Right. Uh, and says, you know, you deserve this. Yep. Uh, it, it was wonderful. And and yeah. I think, you know, in a, a great, um, uh, this is from that author, uh, Philip Furia, um, who, who says, you know, it, 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 who notes that it is a wonderful use of song in a non-musical picture. It is. That's a great point, right? I mean, this is not, this is not a musical, but it's an interesting break, uh, particularly in the pacing of the film. Right. So. Yeah, she, she really is great. Claire Trevor is somebody who's been around, uh, you know, since the early thirties and she acted all the way up until the, uh, the late eighties. So she'd been around a long time. A lot of this period of time, she'd been doing a lot of the uh, film noir, like she's in murder, my sweet, um, and you know, just a just a great actress. She played these roles really well. She was nominated for a couple other uh, films, Dead End and The High and the Mighty, and uh, she won her Oscar for this film. And it's funny because this, like I said, this film came out the same year as Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And as we said on that episode, when Walter Houston won, he said, you know, if you ever become a writer or director, please find a good part for your old man. You know, and 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 he did or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he said that in his acceptance speech. Claire Trevor kind of took to that since, you know, again, this is a John Huston directed film. Uh, that film was also directed by John Huston. And so when she went up, she said, I have three boys and I hope they grow up to be writers so they can give their old lady a part. So, <laughs> so I thought that was great. It was a nice little nod to uh, the Houstons, I guess. That's wonderful. But yeah, she's she really is fantastic in this film, and and uh, you know I just love her for all the uh, noir stuff she's done, and just a, just a, a great actress of the of the time. So how do you feel like this film stacks up to something like Sierra Madre? I mean, I know we'll do the flick chart thing later, but but you know they come out the same year. Uh, I know you and I both had very sort of um, you know strong feelings about Sierra Madre, and and particularly Bogart's performance in it. Uh, how do you feel just overall about Key Largo? You know, I like Key Largo, but it does feel very um, uh, confined, very tight. And, you know, I think that comes from it being based on a play. It does just feel like kind of a one one room story. And it it doesn't bug me so much. I really love the characters, the, uh, particularly everything with Robinson and, and uh, Trevor. I think they are just... Uh, they just make every scene with them in it just so enjoyable to watch. Uh, the story itself doesn't thrill me as much as uh, as Madre is Sierra Madre, which really, I mean, is definitely you know one of my top films. I really love that film. This one, um, I I really like it, but it's not something I I would find myself returning to time and time again. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it for me too. I mean, I just, I, I found um, what I found most interesting about it is I walked away thinking there were some incredibly talented people on screen that were uh, that seemed uh, poorly utilized, and and I don't think that's necessarily the fault of of the 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 direction, but maybe the fault of the script uh, that it ends up may, perhaps with too many. Uh, too many voices. Um, I, I I don't know, but I I just came away with some sort of mixed feelings. Like I I end up really loving uh, specific performances or specific elements or sequences. Um, I, I think at the 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 bit at the end when um, when uh, Johnny Rocco kind of unravels on the boat right before he's uh, shot by uh, mm-hmm. Frank McCloud. I think that ends up being a really interesting kind of psychological sequence. I think Bogart's portrayal when he, when he sort of switches, when you, you, there's a, there is one of those sort of famous Houston emotional close-up reaction shots when you actually see Bogart realize that he's going to need to, to change his, his ways and actually take a, take a part in this, um, in, in this exercise. Um, 
you know, I, I think it's, it's immediately after um, uh, the guy is shot in the back as running out. You know, it's the first kind of shot. Uh, when he realizes that he needs to actually take a part. Uh, and I thought that was a really, that was captured really well. But overall, when you ask me kind of, well, how does the film stack up? Eh, it's not, not one of my top, top films. It's certainly not one of my top Houston films. Right, right. Yeah, definitely not. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it is an enjoyable film, but it's not uh, something that I think that either of us, you know, clearly are going to return to time and time again. Yeah. Uh, but it does have a nice, real quick. It does yeah. have a nice um, hint of the world of film noir, which you know we we know John Huston's kind of already uh, dabbled in with the Maltese Falcon. Um, it's not quite noir. It doesn't really have any like real dark characters. This one is pretty clear between the good guys and the bad guys. Right. It doesn't really. Um, uh, completely fit the the whole thing it it has a happy ending you know a lot of things that don't scream film noir but then again the way that uh, it was shot the way that um carl freund or frund uh, the cinematographer shot it it really does have a very kind of film noir look to it which i i do find pretty interesting it's it's got a lot of those shadows like you see some great shadows up on the wall um, or on the floor, wherever they are, as people are kind of going around, and it's got some interesting, uh, the way that the framing is, it does feel noirish sometimes, and I find that really interesting that they're adopting some of the noir uh, tendencies to to expand on this tight crime story, um, which I really like about it. I really like the look of this film quite a bit. Yeah, um, you know, I it I. Carl Freund, I think, uh, you, you know, he brings that uh, an, an interesting sort of feel to his films. You know, you go back to the legendary sort of Dracula or Metropolis and, and um, uh, you know, you see some of the same curves of light. Uh, and, and I think it plays well in this sort of one room uh, mystery uh, of, of Key Largo. Uh, at the same time, there is that that conflict of you know you walk in saying uh, okay this is a this is Houston this is Bogart this is a uh film noir uh, and then it's you know it's sort of not uh and and I I almost feel like this is we get into a little bit of a high jump low ceiling kind of association where um uh you know it's it it that that may be some where some of the emotional tension kind of pulls apart for me where I I lose interest in the overall story and find myself kind of drifting back into you know thinking about something else. Well, yeah, and I can see some of that, but at the same time, I also feel this film really taps nicely into the crime films that Warner Brothers was cranking out in the 30s, uh, where both uh, Robinson and Bogart came from. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go back to uh, uh, Rico Bendello in Little Caesar uh, that uh, Edward G. Robinson played, and you know, you've got him really kind of creating a lot of these gangster films. And Bogey as this bad guy before he really um, broke out with Maltese Falcon. And then you see where these guys, uh, you know, they come together again here. And I think because of that, it does kind of have the noirish look. But I think in, the, in so many ways, I think this one feels much more like a, the crime stories of old rather than a noir. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I can see that, but you know, and then I, so you, you, you bring up, uh, you know, little Caesar, you bring up, uh, I don't know what else, uh, uh, double indemnity, uh, you know, uh, these movies that, that I, I just think Key Largo doesn't hold a candle to, to these films. It, it almost, you know what, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like the last breath, right? It's the last breath when we've run out of energy. This movie, it just, it, it ends up feeling like there are so many great elements and then we're all just kind of, oh, whew, finished. Yeah. That's what this movie feels like to me in a, in, in terms of a, a sort of cross or, or transformational genre film. It just doesn't feel like it's, it's terribly aggressive in, in uh, figuring out what, what it is or what role it plays in either genre uh, as successfully as, as, you know, certainly some, some of those that had come before. Well, and I wonder if some of that comes from the the uh, need that uh, that Houston felt uh, of putting this political subtext in the film. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that probably makes uh, that's probably uh, spot on. Because I, I do find when people when people make films and they feel they need to get a message across or something like that or or, or build this this bigger theme that taps into you know modern sensibilities. I mean, sometimes it works really well. You know, you look at something like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is a great film that was made that tapped into kind of the uh, the 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 witch hunts right. of, the, of the communists and everything. Uh, that was were going on at the time. I mean, but it was done in a way that you didn't have to see that subtext there at all. This one, it does feel a little bit like it's just trying to beat you over the head as far as, you know, oh, this guy's complacent. He's not going to take a stand. And you're a coward, all that sort of stuff. I mean, look, it does. Look at Lionel Barrymore, a fat man in a wheelchair. Who does he <laughs> remind you of? <laughs> right. I, You know, that talk about beating you over the head like that. I, I that's right. Um. All right. So, uh, in you know, I found I really loved the music uh, of this film, Max Steiner. Yeah, you know, Max Steiner. He's a he knows how to write us some good scores. He certainly does. I found that that was a, a part that really stood out uh, for me. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, geez, this is a, a composer who uh, was just you know very busy this year. I mean, you know, conducting the music for Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm -hmm. You know, he he wrote uh, this. I mean, he's just you know he's he's good. He is. He's good. Max Steiner, man. Uh, let's see. I also. What else really stood out for you in this film? Well, you know, this film. I have to point out um, a, a couple. There's another element of this story where you have these um, these Indians, these Native Americans oh, down yeah. there. This these Osceola or the uh, the um, what's the tribe? I can't remember the name of the tribe. It's it's the Florida tribes. I you know I couldn't remember an adaptation. I can't remember here. <laughs> what is the name of these uh, the the tribe down there? The uh, Seminoles. Um, uh, the, we you have these Osceola brothers who are you know wanted by the cops because they did something and and you know it's it's kind of a weird thing that's going yes. on with them and they agreed to turn themselves in and all this sort of stuff and it doesn't go well but you you get to this one scene where you see them coming in there they are introduced by um Bacall by uh, you know Nora Temple to Frank McLeod and you get this just horribly horribly awful uh, just, you know, me don't talk English good sort of uh, dialogue. And it just, it pains me to to hear him doing that. Um, because otherwise, I think that I, I like how the uh, the treatment of the Native Americans, for the most part in the film, is it's actually done pretty well. It's Except for when they speak, it just all of a sudden becomes so... It's so awful and stereotypical it is it's horrific but i'm interested in how you like how they fit into your schema of being treated pretty well well i, I mean okay so they're, i mean they're, they're, they're not treated well they're they're treated very poorly they're by, treated poorly in, in and end up dead story. but right. but i liked the the just the relationship that these people have with them that it's not like they're treating them like oh we don't talk to them because they're the they're the Indians or anything like that. They actually have a good relationship with this tribe. And you've got the grandma there who's, you know, smoking the cigarette and all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, I like the way that they, they treat them just like regular people here in Key Largo. I guess okay. that's what I was saying. All you right. Know. So, so, but, but going back to that, Jay Silverheels is one of these, uh, one of these two Indians, the, uh, these two Seminoles wanted by the law. And he is, uh, a Canadian Indian actor who everybody should know as Tonto. He rode with the Lone Ranger. Oh, right. Yeah. All right. He is Tonto. So, uh, you know, a weird, it's, I, I don't know if it, if it's that weird, but it's just, you know, considering we've got Johnny Depp coming out uh, later this year, um, uh, playing Tonto here. Yeah. We, here we go watching the original, uh, Tonto in, uh, Key Largo, Jay Silverheels. I did not. Yeah. I did not catch that. That's uh, that's very interesting. It I, is. I I would just think about the, on that on the topic. You're right. It, they, when they speak, it's it's you know by our ears horribly <laughs> offensive treatment, character treatment of these. You know, obviously it was a different time, uh, but I I found it interesting that these guys were very clearly on the run from quote the state. Uh, they were, uh, you know, the authorities were looking for them. They stopped the bus to to find them. They were they're searching vehicles. Um, these guys had 
you know, were uh, had had found uh, you know sympathy in this um, you know liberal hotel owner, and uh, they end up in a really weak uh, sort of uh, uh, chase, uh, running from the authorities, and are shot in the back. Right? Yeah. Okay. That that just I I mean that that felt like again you talk about being hammered over the head with what's going on in uh, you know our, our sort of uh, the socio political environment uh, and and the hunts of those that you know because it was it's it, there was really a question about whether or not these Indians were guilty of anything. Uh, right. Well, even even Lionel Barrymore says, you know, these guys, you know, these these cops are just they feel the need to yes. just come in. And I can't remember his line, but they feel the need to just come in and clean up all the Indians and get them out of here. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, it and does. the it, apology it, is when he comes back in and everything is straightened out and the 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 the, the officer comes back in. Who what is the officer's name? Do you have the cast list? in front? Well, I got to find it. He comes back in and he's and he he's what he says amounts to basically. Huh. Really sorry, I shot those guys. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> it was uh, Monty Blue as Sheriff yep, Ben Wade. Monty Blue, right? Uh, it, it's uh, uh, it, it's a really sort of. I, I think that's so much more of the of the the hammer over the head story that we're we're getting from uh, Houston and and Brooks. Yeah, and you can tell that you know Houston is much more on the side of of the the Barrymore right. and these characters and he feels that this is these are wrongs that unjust yeah we're we're committing these days and that's why i guess i i, I you know appreciate the the that they actually even bothered including a story with these these native american characters in here you know yeah, it's but you're right it does end up feeling just like another opportunity to hit us over the head with a political message yeah i you know this is one of those films though i wonder you know, I, I sort of felt the same way when I, I saw Dumb Indemnity this summer. I think we talked about this uh, or last summer uh, at the Chautauqua film series, the classic right. film series where they play these things in these in this really old classic theater. And I, we certainly don't have one of those here in, in Portland. So, um, you know, it was very exciting to see that. And you, you sort of feel like you're going back in time. And I, I wonder, this is one of those films that I I so deeply wish we had like a time machine. I would love to go to a movie house in 1948 and see this movie with the gift of, of context, because uh, I think there is, there's, I think I'd get a lot more out of it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if that means the weight of this film deflates with time. Uh, it's certainly not one that holds up as well as Sierra Madre. Yeah, no, it, it definitely doesn't. I mean, it's still, it, it's, it's got good. great characters. It's definitely worth watching. Right. I mean, it is still a good film. I mean, it, it, you know, don't listen to us and assume that it's not. Oh, yeah, you should see that. You should see this movie. Yeah, there, are, there are very few movies that we covered where we think you should not see it. <laughs> yes, yes. Consider uh, us watching Rush, your penance for not having to watch Rush yeah, ever, ever again. That's one of the movies. <laughs> All right. But uh, yeah, it, but it it, um, it it does have its its moments. It is good. Um, Jerry Wald produced this for uh, for John Houston. Jerry Wald had I, I'm trying to remember if they had worked together before or not. But Jerry Wald had uh, he actually the same year um, he won. Uh, I don't know if you win, but he received an Irving. Uh, G. Thalberg Award in 1948. It was a very big year for all these guys. I am saying G. Irving Thalberg. I'm stuck on Edward G. Robinson. Mm -hmm. uh, he won. He won. Uh, received the Irving Thalberg Award for Johnny Belinda, which came out the same year. So, just like Houston, uh, Wald had a couple films in the race that year as well. Uh, so, and, but, and you know, Wald has produced 70 titles. Uh, he's he's got he's one of those that has a. Uh, Quite yeah, a, quite a list of hits. Been around. Yeah. He's been around from. Uh, it looks like he started in the uh, in the early '30s, and uh, went all the way up into the in the early '60s. So yeah, he had a, a good chunk of time doing that. Good. Uh, so you know, good film. I'll give you. I, I. I. It was a good film. I enjoyed watching it. Was, you know, I, I. I. I do enjoy watching it. I mean, it's it's one of those films that's kind of nice to put in every you know 
uh, once in a while just to kind of refresh your memory. It definitely doesn't need to be seen that often. But I mean, if if for no other reason, watch it to watch uh, Claire Trevor. I mean, amazing performance by her. And just it really it breaks your heart to watch her in this film. It sure does. Uh, yeah. Well-deserved Oscar. Yeah. This uh, film, it looks like it made it. I, I did, couldn't find anything as far as how much it cost uh, uh, to make, but it did make just over eight million dollars domestically, and uh, yeah, so it's it's not a, a huge chunk of change, but we're talking nineteen forty eight dollars. And when right. you look, at, uh, let's see, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, same year. Actually, I couldn't find any information on how much that grossed, only how much that one cost, oddly. So, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, it was a very successful film for its time. People really enjoyed the film. Truly, truly. All right. The, the, um, last little bit that I just yeah. have to throw out is, um, this is one of those, have you ever been to the Keys, the Florida Keys? Yes. Well, it's been years, but yes. Yeah. Likewise for me, uh, oh, take, yeah. taking a drive down the Keys, I think is pretty interesting going across like the seven mile bridge and all that. And that is a crazy bridge. It really is. It really is. It's and a, it's totally unassuming. It's not like one of those crazy Australian bridges, or they, it, until you realize, like at mile four, you're still on a bridge. Yeah, you're still on a bridge out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> right. God forbid a tidal wave comes along or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really interesting place. It's it. I don't know, like Key West, Key Largo, all these keys down there. It just it's almost like its own little life. It's like. A long town stretched across all of these little islands down off of Florida. And it's really strange. I I, I drove, I went down there once and I, I did quite enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I loved the uh, seeing the sea and the sharks and everything down there and the fish. And um, But it, yeah, it's just, it's its, its own unique culture. Yeah. And, uh, and I got to say that the other thing about this film, and uh, this film is one of the things that's, that will forever... Um, be cursed along with many other things in the Caribbean. Every time I hear the name, instantly I'm singing the Beach Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you are. Yes, you yeah. are. That's unfortunate. Uh, you know, hey, any of these places, yeah. You know, speaking of uh, the fact that it was shot in the Keys, I, the, I thought it was interesting just as an observation that that Houston went to such trouble to do that that long tracking helicopter shot to open the film. Mm -hmm. uh, where where we actually put Bogart, we're introduced to Bogart on a bus. We put him on a bus and we see the, the authorities coming to... The, so the entire film, the, the rest of the... I mean, what is it? Seven, you know, is it an uh, hour and 40 minutes? Right, yep. All right, so the, 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 the other hour and 37 minutes, or 38 minutes... Uh, takes place in either on a on a boat, kind of the last fifteen minutes of the film, or in this hotel. They went to it seems like great efforts to give us this establishing shot of the keys that seems to look sort of out of place. Well, uh, my my sense of this, and I I don't know if this is true, but I I know that almost the entire film was actually shot on the Warner Brothers lot, right? And um, except for the open and, you know, there's some storm scenes of when the hurricane is raging that were actually they have pulled. Some cutaways, yeah. Yeah, they, and they pulled those from another film. I think it was a Ronald, uh, what was it, the Ronald Reagan film, Night Unto Night, some stock yes. footage in that film. So my sense is that uh, John Huston had done The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, spent a ridiculous amount of money filming on location in rural Mexico and I have a feeling that this was um, the studio uh, putting a kibosh on him actually going on location for his next film saying, okay, you yeah. already did that once. Now you're going to make this here at home. <laughs> you can go get your one little shot, but don't even think about trying to do anything on location. You, I love that. You know, you could you could sort of see how that conversation goes, right? Like, yeah. Or you could <laughs> shoot here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just think yeah. about it. Just yeah. think about I it. I mean, really, oh. uh, you could shoot. Right here. <laughs> uh, okay, so shall we rank this thing? Are we ready for that? Yeah, I think so. I'm just kind of looking through, seeing if there's anything else I was going to talk about. I think we kind of hit all of it. So yeah, let's rank let's, this bad boy. Let's do it. Pull open our flick chart here. Now ranking. All right, Key Largo. This will be our 66th film on our list all right Key Largo. all right go ahead all right ready yeah, Key Largo. Yeah, I'm ready 
or David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? <laughs> Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. <laughs> Key Largo or the Parallax View? I'll, I'll oh, say Parallax yeah, View. Yeah, Parallax View. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoy that film. Yeah. Key Largo or Bullet? Bullet. Yep. Sorry, Key Largo. This, this Key, may okay. be down there with Rush. No, it's not quite, but it's 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 pushing its way. Key Largo or Alien Resurrection? I I'm going with Key Largo on that one. I'll probably watch Alien Resurrection more often, but that doesn't mean that I like it. More. Yeah, I was just gonna say that may be sad. Okay. It really is. Right. It really is sad. Yeah, I'll give you Key Largo on that one. Key Largo or Bull Durham? Oh, I'm totally Bull Durham on this one. I know you are. <laughs> Dang it. And I know you are too. All right, come on. All right, I you, I mean you, fine. You, I because give the two by four. I was can... just gonna say, like, what what do you like more, looking at a two by four or being hit with one? <laughs> Ouch! <Wow. laughs> right, all right, all right. And uh, Key Largo or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going Key Largo. I know, Key Largo. Yeah. I know. It's got, it's got great lines. Yeah. Okay. It's got it's... great lines. <laughs> 61 out of 66. Okay, so just give me the give me the ones that are below. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, <laughs> Alien Resurrection, The Fifth Element, Strange Days, and Rush. Wow. I can't believe The Fifth Element is at 64. <laughs> oh, I can. <laughs> You are you're a hard person. I I am you're cold and hard and <sighs> okay. This was good. I this was good. So next, what are we doing next week? Can we talk about it? Next week, uh, yeah, we're going to be continuing our John Houston series, and we're going to be jumping up just a couple years to uh, the Asphalt Jungle. I'm uh, really looking forward to watching this movie again. I am too. I haven't seen it in, uh, you know, I don't know, probably five years or so. And I'm definitely looking forward to checking it out again because oh, I really yeah. enjoy that film. It's terrific. Terrific film. I hope I, I hope I like it again. <laughs> well, yeah, with John Houston, I always get a little nervous uh, with his hey, films. Like, you, did I like that one? I don't remember. Do you, did you ever catch, there was a, there, I, so I, I got this old home video from my parents. They, you know, it was old VHS tape and it had some, it was some fishing video, right? Of me as a kid. And they said, you need to put this on a thing so we can watch it. Whatever you do, make it so we can watch it now on my on our iPads. That's what they wanted. So I did this. It was like 20 minutes. And at the end of that, there we go with Alfred Hitchcock Presents that oh. we had recorded from one night years and years ago. Okay. And it was the John Houston Hitchcock Presents bit. The uh, one with the fingers? With the fingers. Yeah. What was that called? Do you know what that was called? Because I didn't get the very beginning of it, but man, that was fantastic. You know, that's the um, uh, that's the one that they they remade that. Remember in the eighties when they started remaking episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, like for a new audience, and it's yeah. like mid eighties. That was my introduction to Alfred Hitchcock, and they were all color, and I don't remember who was actually in um, that one. But that's also the one that Quentin Tarantino uh, did his own little kind of spinoff of in Four Rooms when he did his story there. Exactly. So that's exactly that, right. Yeah, so that story is... Uh, you know stuff. what? Now I can tell you. It was uh, 1985, The Man from the South. Uh, man proposes a bizarre wager to win a sports car. A down-and-out gambler must light his lighter 10 times in a row or lose a finger. Mm-hmm. And actually, it is. Uh, I should have b- before I sounded silly by not knowing it. I should have just shirt- searched for it because it was right there. There you go. And uh, it was John Houston in the eighty-five version, yes. not the fifty-five version, it, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, but it was. Oh, if you, I could just take your little pinky. <laughs> that was that episode really creeped me it out. It was so creepy, and the car that he was like a Trans Am or something like that. It was, it was <laughs> great. Uh, it was great. That's all right, stuff. all right. That's that's all I got. Hey, it's go- well, and and you know, just just you know, before before we completely leave, yeah. As far as John Huston goes, I mean, we're definitely talking about a lot of his uh, films that he's directed, but we will at some point start talking about some stuff that he's uh, acted in, right? Yes. 
Absolutely. Because, I mean, this, this is a man who has a, a very big career as a director, as an actor, and as a writer. So he's all over the place. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, we did a couple of Houston, well, sort of did them last year. We'll do a couple this year. I think, our, I think you know, we both really like Houston. We'll, we'll come back yep. and do these again and again. All right. I got nothing else. I'm officially done with you. Ouch. Ouch. That was a blow to the gut. Was it? Really? Nah, not really. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.